Good afternoon, colleagues. This is Dr. Richard McCallum, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, Jim, representing the American Federation for Medical Research. And as you know, every month uh, we do a podcast. It's usually based on a topic that is uh, identified with that month. Uh, for example, last month was Colon Cancer Screening Month, and we talked to uh, some experts from MD Anderson. This month, we, we, we chose uh, the topic of Parkinson's disease. This is one entity that's identified as Parkinson's Month here in April. And I was fortunate enough to be able to attract uh, Gazalia Hyatt, who's uh, the expert neurologist at uh, SLU, St. Louis University Medical Center in St. Louis, Missouri, and also who's um, an associate editor for our journal, Jim, in neurology. So I'm very fortunate to have Dr. Hyatt with me, and she's going to uh, address some comments that, uh, and some questions I've raised. But first of all, let me give you a brief background. Um, she graduated from King Edward Medical College in Pakistan, specifically in Lahore. And I'm going to make a couple of comments here. I didn't warn her about this, but um, I didn't, I've never really seen that kind of uh, high esteem. She was the best high school student in Pakistan. That's quite an accomplishment. Um, and she did a training, as I said, in Lahore. Lahore in Pakistan is called the soul of Pakistan. We have a New York, maybe that's Karachi. Lahore's the soul, and it's also the heart of cricket. There's a very famous cricketer who became the president. Uh, Khan, very well-known name. At one point, he went out with uh, Princess Diana. And it's a very famous cricket stadium. If you're a cricket uh, connoisseur like me, you make sure you go to it. It's called the Gaddafi Stadium in Lahore. And I did, uh, I did visit that myself. So some nice memories of, uh, of Lahore, uh, Dr. Hyatt. And uh, then she went on and did some neurology residency in Mayo College of Virginia. And for following year, she pursued fellowship in neuromuscular disease and electrodiagnostic medicine at Mayo College of Virginia. Uh, before journeying, uh, to the title of Professor in Neurology at St. Louis University. She's the Director of Neuromuscular Services and the Clinical Neurophysiology Laboratory. Also Director of the uh, Amyotrophic Lateral Sclerosis Clinic. Um, she also was the Director of the Fellowship Training Program there from 1996 to 2019 and Director of Quality Improvement currently at uh, St. Louis University School of Medicine. She has special interest in peripheral neuropathies, oppressive, compressive neuropathies, neuromuscular junction disorders, electrodiagnostic studies. And she's you know, well, well equipped from uh, board certified in psychiatry and neurology and uh, published extensively as well as presented at our national meetings in, uh, in this area. So it's really a pleasure uh, to have Dr. Hyatt available today and to be able to uh, come up with some thoughtful answers, I hope, and our own ideas too uh, about Parkinson's. I find Parkinson's 
particularly concerning because at my age I could be evolving into Parkinson's. Many of my friends have. And so one question I'd ask you, Dr. Hayat, is, is it just my imagination or are we seeing more, uh, more frequent diagnosis of Parkinson's? Are we just more alert, more observant? Or do you think it is really on the rise? Interested in your opinion. Oh, well, thank you very much, Dr. McKellen, first uh, for the invitation, kind invitation, and refreshing my memories about Lahore. Um, I'm impressed by your memory and correct pronunciation of the stadium name, too. Um, so I think, you know, it should not your imagination. The prevalence is increasing. The studies have shown, and I'll go briefly into why it is. So the first, I think, the Initially, when we looked at it, it was uh, Copiah County and in Mississippi in 1978, and they looked at 26 patients, so tried to calculate what would be the prevalence. And later on, they found that that city or that area had actually not the normal prevalence too. And what the studies have shown is that uh, between 1976 to 1985, there was like 38.9 per 100,000 population. But this has been, you know, a change from 1996 to 2005. That has like what your observation is 55.9 per 100,000. So there is increased prevalence. We're seeing increased and multiple reasons have been. One is that maybe it's better recognition. Another uh, interesting point is, you know, because smoking has is a, like a protective in a way, protective effect on Parkinson's disease. So because smoking has decreased in our country over the last so many 30, 40 years. So that is another reason they're thinking that might be having effect. Second is um, the longer we live, the older, so like age 45, um, with more than age for 45, we're saying that in America in 2020, we should have 1 million. In 10 years, it will be 1.24 million. Um, the longer our population is the life expectancy, everything increasing, the chances of neurodegenerative disorders will go up. So that's another reason. Then we talk about, is it like we are more exposed to pesticides, you know, head trauma is another thing. So all these are um, combination is that's leading to, yeah, there's increased prevalence. So it's not just your imagination, we are seeing more and, um, it's so great that we have a, a Parkinson awareness and that should be a topic. I was going to their website um, and that was this, uh, we need to make sure how many people know about it and how they're diagnosed. Well, when I was growing up, you know, in the sixties and seventies and um, drug use was beginning to be used, you know, there was a period of time where LSD mm -hmm. uh, became connected with Parkinson's. I don't know whether marijuana has any other connections, but drug use is sort of in the in the in the in the background of this generation now. My generation that grew up in that era. Uh, well, what's the current party line on the LSD world and other psychotropic agents, drug use in general? Is there any connection to why Parkinson's may be increasing? So that is not, but you know that we had those, our like animal and all those models are based on MPTP. You know, those were the people, young people who took that, those laced 
uh, drugs and this uh, developed like in a very short period of time, they developed Parkinson's disease. And those that showed uh, mitochondrial dysfunction related to that. So, yeah, so that theory is still there that, and the, you know, these models, all these studies are done on MPTP models because mitochondrial dysfunction, either related to different things, pesticide or so trauma, what starts and also, you know, is that that's leading to increase, but no, there's no, um, I've not come across anything related to marijuana. I don't think that has anything to do with it unless until you have laced with, which is causing mitochondrial dysfunction. I don't think we can say it's related to marijuana. Now I use a lot of metoclopramide or Reglan. And of course that's so it's a dopamine antagonist. So one of the concerns out there is I could induce if I'm not careful and, and lower the dose or stop it in some cases, I may induce a Parkinsonian-like picture, which in some cases has been known to go on and maybe not reverse or go into tart of dyskinesia. Uh, Any thoughts about those kind of um, uh, dopamine 2 antagonists out there that may be giving us another version of Parkinson's? So that um, that's a good question. I think we should differentiate it when we call Parkinson disease. So we should define it what Parkinson disease is. What you are mentioning is very important. It's called Parkinsonism. So I think we should just call it Parkinsonism. And yes, if we keep on taking, you know, all second dose generation antipsychotic medication, all these medicines you're mentioning, patients could develop Parkinsonism. And um, it should improve if you stop it, but so. But if you have symptom, let's say you have stopped it for one year and you're still having those Parkinsonian features, that means that you have a permanent deficit now and you'll be left with that. So we have to be very careful. It's actually it's, um, our healthcare provider's duty to keep an eye on those, especially who are not in field of neurology. Now, Unfortunately, I had a couple of friends who evolved into a nursing facility and were doing their exercises and walking with assistants and taking their L-DOPA. And I was hoping that over time, your L-DOPA would be positive. But as I read about it and learn about it, and these friends unfortunately have passed on, uh, although they may walk a bit better and have less stiffness and maybe a little better speech, uh, the disease is still evolving, certainly uh, as far as their uh, mental state and as far as their CNS involvement and maybe even their swallowing. So L-DOPA, while it looks good and is the your first thing you think of, it is not changing the pathophysiology of the disease. Is that my understanding? That is correct. It's a neurodegenerative disorder. And unfortunately, there's nothing which will change pathophysiology. Basically, we are doing, we can achieve a couple of things. We can delay the process, slow the progression, but we are not, it's not, so I always say it's a treatment, it's not a cure. And what with the, although that is like in a levodopa, carbidopa, or your levodopa is also used as a diagnostic test for also Parkinson's disease. In initial stages, it's very helpful. You know, you have dopamine, you have deficiency, and it helps there. But then there's a sensitization of the receptors, and then you start developing one is the less effect, and second thing is also side effects of 
um, levodopa itself, which are sometimes actually worse than for lots of patients compared to what they were achieving benefit. And what's happening is like your cells are, uh, you know, in substantia nigra and all those circles are getting progressively getting worse over time. And um, this one is uh, levodopa and those cannot. And eventually, so you, if you see patients, what will happen, they start increasing the dose and then start decreasing, increasing the frequency and then start developing these different dyskinesia. So you have to address those. So you're right, it's not, it's not, it was a game changer, but it's not a cure at this time. So there are many other medications available that could be added to improve patients, you know, symptoms and side effects. So you could have, you know, uh, dopamine agonist, we can add those. Um, for long time, CUMT inhibitors and tacopone, which you know, basically inhibits metabolism of levodopa and dopamine. So basically what we are doing is we're just slowing down that metabolism. So slowing down the process, which I discussed just previously. So if you have a lesser breakdown of levodopa, you have less side effects and the time to develop kind of lessing, being less efficacious is prolonged. MAO inhibitors, uh, which impair the metabolism of dopamine, like selegiline, resegiline, uh, sephamide, those are other drugs. And these are mostly what we call add-on. Rarely, yeah. initially, you could start in those on, but I think best thing would be start with levodopa. We have also used amantadine. Um, this is just mild anti-Parkinsonian effect helps with levodopa-induced dyskinesias. Um, I'm not a great fan of that, but trihexafenadyl has been used and primarily to treat trauma. Uh, the issue is because it's, um, you know, I said fifth, sixth middle age uh, disorder, we start seeing it. And then they will have a lot of anticholinergic side effects, which I think I find more bothersome to the patient than it is. But if tremor is the main thing, you can try it in low dose. It would not be, I mean, that it's, Mm-hmm. It's not harmful, but watch for those side effects. Um, another newer uh, thing I relatively ever say is this carbidopa, levodopa, enteral suspension, duopa, you know, it's just like a kind of depending upon you can inject from in your duodenum. So that will help, you know, absorption, decreases the side effects. It is like other, you know, GI symptoms related to the levodopa that could help. Okay. But, um, I think um, deep brain stimulation has a now a major place, I would say that, or at least in future Good. for the treatment of patients with uh, Parkinson's disease. Yeah, I've got a couple of friends who, um, you know, couldn't get dressed in the morning. They took two hours to put their buttons together on their shirt and they really couldn't function. Deep brain stimulation did help them, but what they found is to find the sweet spot to tune that electrical stimulation to exactly the right pitch or the right places was quite, it took quite a lot of training and, uh, and time to get the right balance. Is, is that something that is a challenge in deep brain stimulation? That's very true. Um, so the, like first thing, I think you mentioned it very correctly, you know, so it helps with the bradykinesia tremors, mostly not the other symptoms with that. Um, so this is like, you're right. It's like you're adjusting those 
our, you know, our from cortical to basal ganglia to thalamocortical, those circuits, that's why we, because of substantia nigra, all the, we're trying to kind of readjust those circuits and those messages. And sometimes a deep brain stimulation can also cause, you know, like we call it looping from that perspective. So this is like the, uh, you, after two to four weeks, depending on which institution is done, uh, the neurologist will move into sort of special and start adjusting it. And you have to find it where you have the minimum side effects and the maximum benefits. You might not have complete, you know, resolution of your symptoms, but your, it will improve much. So um, how long can I do deep brain stimulation for? I mean, what's the normal sort of time frame? Uh, do I look at, on doing it for years or what, what, what's my realistic um, hope with deep brain stimulation? So that's, that's another good question. I mean, the most of the studies have, I mean, they've, they've looked at even up to seven years. So they have been there for some time. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it also depends upon the complication, you know, if you have to go back, the leads are broken or any other. But um, I mean, with the better wiring and all those things and the electrodes, I'm sure with time, it will be there for years. That will help patients. Okay. Now, how about if, if you're feeling like your, your mental sharpness is not quite as good and maybe you've got that facial look or your, you know, those staring eyes and some of the other characteristics, maybe a little change in your mental sharpness is the first thing. Um, what are some of the biomarkers? Would I go and get an MRI scan to look for any specific findings in the brain or... Well, what are some of the things we, uh, we're looking at as far as biomarkers? Yeah, so um, that's what uh, I always, you know, patients will say, okay. Sometimes you see the patient the first time say, I think that's, that's Parkinson's disease, but I'm not sure. And then you might have to see them a little bit later and do all those tests and biomarkers. And I always tell patients, I said, um, We'll be fortunate if we have blood test, we drew it and just diagnosed that's what you have. So there, but we have, I mean, there are a lot of progress and there's a lot of research going on. So most of the people might have heard about the DAT scan, you know, that is like a dopamine transporter SPECT scan. Um, there's a little bit, I mean, you have different schools of thoughts. Um, they said it may not be positive. You have other type of Parkinsonism and everything, but your Parkinson disease, if you look at it and you see changes that might point it towards that. F-DOPA PET scan is another one which is useful. Um, I've not used it, but I've come across a few papers that say transcranial sonography. And I think you have a real expert and they had some hypoechoic uh, messages, which uh, they were able to diagnose. The patients had some changes in the basal ganglion. Um, another major thing, which is our, our uh, universities also is optical coherence tomography or OCT. So because Parkinson disease, you know, classically we talked about is just like a motor symptoms, but it affects your visual and all those system too. So this OCT can look at the eyes from that neuronal and it can, that may be point towards. So if you already have suspicion and these things you do it, they will function as your biomarkers. Um, CSF is turning out to be a major one that we could. Mm -hmm. If you have to do it, one is like, you know, clear fibrillary acidic um, protein, GAFAP. 
there's a, another one, you know, light chain neurofilaments, which we are looking at also in the ALS and other condition, brain uh, dry BNDF, uh, urate is another one, glutathione. So there are many, they're looking at it, that this is coming in DJ1, Parkinson, which is, if it's increased, that means the patient probably has, because this is showing that it's increased oxidative stress. Um, these will tell you that this is what's going on. Um, and then, um, you know, if you suspect um, that it's genetic, then you can do the gene testing too. But rarely you will find one gene. Um, you could get SNCA, you could get PINK1 or LARC2, PARC. But those are the different genes, but usually they are uh, runs in the family. You will have the history. Uh, depending on the institution, I mean, that may be another one if you suspect. But these are the different biomarkers which will point towards that, okay, I'm suspecting patient has Parkinson's disease, and then those will help us and make the diagnosis. Now, would I get those at a very specialized place like yours? Or if I just went to a neurologist in downtown Missoula, Montana, somewhere, um, I'd probably get an MRI, which might show some atrophy, right? Are there any special mm -hmm. MRI findings or how, how much access would the average downtown neurologist have to these special biomarkers? Okay, so that scan should not be a difficult thing, but let's say if we are not in large institution, anything, then your uh, typical MRI scan, you might be able to see your uh, substantial nigra changes. Those are right. most of like 1.5, above 1.5 Tesla, you should be able to, and most of the places have that one. Mm -hmm. um, then um, you can probably, I think, run the CSF and send it to some specialty pharmacy uh, laboratory and run for those, and that will help you from that perspective. I think those are the two one which will be easily done any place could be done. Good. Well, um, I've really enjoyed, I've really enjoyed our, our, our time together. Um, as a gastroenterologist, I would say that one of the mixing links in this country, uh, which, we, which we would use in Europe, not that I'm there, but L-DOPA's commonest side effect is nausea. That's right. And in, in, in the uh, rest of the world, we have a drug called Domperidone, not a champagne. That's uh, great. <laughs> a, a, a dopamine 2 uh, antagonist that does not mm -hmm. enter the blood-brain barrier. It blocks nausea, uh, increases prolactin, but it doesn't, it doesn't cause CNS side effects like Reglan. And that's a, a wonderful marriage for the nausea of L-DOPA. Uh, we don't have it in this country, but in Europe, like chemotherapy, you get sent the chemotherapy drug plus uh, on Dancitron or some antiemetic. In Europe, you get sent L-DOPA plus Domperidone. And, uh, That's very true. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, we, we don't have that. Yeah, if you look at the article and if you look at this, I mean, patients do respond very well to that. I mean. Yeah, you probably had it in, in Pakistan. You probably have that, it. That is, that is correct. That's right. And then the only other thing I see as a gastroenterologist is it is part of the dysphagia workup. You know, it does come that across. I, I'm not sure it's early dysphagia, but the commonest GI symptom is constipation. Constipation can precede uh, the neurological findings of Parkinson's. You can have, you can have um, 
these bodies, uh, Louis bodies in the colon before you have neurological defects. Uh, I've seen that. Uh, That's but, very true because yeah. um, they have seen, I mean, you could have constipation even 20 years, you know, that was like before yeah. the onset of symptoms, right. you can lose your sense of smell. Those are the like non-motor anxiety, depression and anxiety, depression is without reason. You don't know why you have those symptoms. Those are non-motor, which are very important. Dysautonomia is very common. So from your GI perspective, you get the other dysautonomia from GI symptoms, you get that bladder, all those, they can get those, but you're right. Constipation is, um, that association was obvious long time ago that there was patients were complaining about constipation. Yeah, some of the worst constipation I've seen has been in, uh, in Parkinson's patients. Well, uh, again, I want to thank you very much, uh, Dr. Hyatt, for joining us. As I said earlier, my wife is from St. Louis. I met her when I was at Barnes Hospital, your competition up the road there, Wash U, and um, uh, we still try to catch an occasional Cardinals game, so maybe we can get together sometime in St. Louis. Well, that'd be great. I would love to have you here, and um, yeah, it's I, you know, I, I stopped calling any other uh, competition. I said they're my collaborators. I mean, we work quite closely with, especially in the neuromuscular washu, we work quite closely. Um, I mean, we work together and then we can serve our patients. That's how it works. Good. Well, again, uh, on behalf of the AFMR and the Journal of Investigative Medicine, I want to thank you for joining us and sharing your expertise and helping us understand Parkinson's and um, we look forward to uh, working with you and with the journal and uh, perhaps doing this again uh, in the next time the Parkinson month comes up. I guess every April we may get around to it, but thank you again. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for the kind invitation.